The Khilafah versus the Kingdom of God. Which is the true kingdom? I did a debate back in 1999 with a cleric, a well-known cleric in Britain named Sheikh Omar Bakri Muhammad, the head of the, what had been first the Hizb ul-Takhir party and then the Mahajirun, the most radical group in Britain, concerning what was the true kingdom. Was it the Islamic state or was it the Christian state? Now, of course, uh, we, we don't call anything a Christian state, but this debate covered that subject and we wanted to find out, come to some type of conclusions. So we did this debate there in uh, central London and inside the debating hall there was about a, a thousand radical Muslims and I could only get about 300 Christians to come to the debate. Sheikh Omar Bakri spent the first hour going through showing us what the state lo would look like, what the Islamic state would look like. And then it was my turn. And uh, what I'm going to share with you now is what I shared with him at that time. And I'm going to go through some of the questions I asked him and some of the parameters or some of the discussion we had in that debate. Now, when we look at the kingdom of God and we look at the Islamic state, if you want to call it the Muslim Khilafah and the Christian Khilafah, uh, we, there are some d differences that we can see almost immediately. Let me just do that this side, and let's just say the Islamic Khilafah on this side and the Christian state on this side, or the Christian kingdom. On the Islamic side, we have a visible, political, geographic state. On the Christian side, we have an invisible, personal, relational entity. On the Muslim side, we find a melding of the sacred and the secular, while on the Christian side, we separate the two. Over here on the Muslim side, we have a state that is based on rules, regulations, institutions. On this side, we have a, basically a kingdom that's based on principles. Over here, we have an Islamic Khilafah modeled on a 7th century fixed Arabic monolithic culture. Over on this side, it's modeled on a contextual, fluid, universal, transcending culture. Over here on this side, it is a focus that is here. On this side, it's a focus that is there. Established by forced over here, established by choice. Imposed on the unwilling, imposed on no one. Survives and thrives on power, survives and thrives on weakness. Created and maintained by man on this side, created and maintained by God. So you can see we're talking about really two different paradigms. We need to unpack that. More specifically, we need to have some questions concerning the Islamic State. They're talking about the Khilafah as they know it. In Surah 24... Ayah, 20, uh, ayah 55 and Surah 63, Ayah 8. Allah promises political power to those who submit to him, to those who obey him, obviously for those that belong to Islam. Therefore, conservative Muslims who follow the Islamic tradition, the, the example of the Prophet himself, believe that by divine right, they should have an Islamic state, an encompassing, world-encompassing Islamic state, one that will take over Britain, Europe, and the rest of the world, what they call the Khilafah in Arabic. Now, I have some questions. And my first question that I asked to Sheikh Omar Bakri Muhammad on the day was this. If the Khilafah came to Britain or if the Khilafah came to the West, where is it modeled so we can look at it? Where today... Where is there any present reality of the Khilafah? I remember asking him, and I've asked this to many other Muslim uh, individuals, and of course their answer is, there is no real model. Yet here, um, there are roughly 150 to 160 nations on earth, uh, about 32 of them uh, we would claim to be Islamic. 
So where is that example of the Islamic State? Is it Saudi Arabia? Would it be the Taliban there in Afghanistan? Is it the Sudan? Is it Pakistan, all of whom claim to be Islamic? Is that the state we're looking at? And most of my Muslim friends would say, absolutely not. It doesn't exist. Now, if that were so, then where is it that we're going to find that state? And what is it that we want to look at? And of course, many Muslims say that uh, the reason why we won't find that Islamic state today is because all these examples that we can give, everyone that claims to be a Muslim state, are all ruled by corrupt individuals. Therefore, there are no good models, they would say. We can't find an example today. My good friend Sheikh Omar Bakri Muhammad would say that there was a model, the Taliban in Afghanistan, if we had given them more time, that would have possibly the best, have been the best model that we could see because it was the closest to what we see from back earlier. But here we go in Surah 2455 and Surah 63.8, Gala promises political power if Muslims submit. So why is it we can't find that model today? Could it be that maybe the model itself is wrong, or maybe it's outdated, or was it mainly, possibly, just a fantasy? When I asked my Muslim friends and when I asked Sheikh Muhammad uh, Omar Bakri why we can't find that model today, his response would have been, and it usually is, that there was a model. It did, does not happen today. We can't see it evidence, but there was in the very beginning. At the very beginning of the time of the prophet, between 622 up until 661, that is a model that we can look at. Now they're talking about that period when Muhammad first initiated the Khilafat there in Medina after he moved up after the Hijrah including the last 10 years of his life until 632, including Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, and Ali. And then finally, when Ali was killed in 661 at the Battle of Sifan, from the 622 to 661, that would have been the best example of the Islamic State. They call it the Rashidun period, the golden period, the period of the rightly guided caliphs. And that's the model, they say, is the model that we should look at. That is the best model, the perfect model. Well, my question also, obviously, is, well, what do we know about that model, and where do we get our information from? And the answer is very clear. We don't have any writings or only re any references from that time period. In fact, everything were dependent on that Rashidun model, that perfect model, that ideal model, the time of the Prophet himself, comes from his biographers, comes from men like Ibn Hisham, who died in 823, comes from Al-Waqidi, who died in 835, comes from Al-Buhari, who died in 870, comes from uh, Sahib, uh, or you might say from uh, Ibn Tabari, uh, Al-Tabari, who died in 923. So all of these references to that model, all these compilations of what it looked like, were all written down two to three hundred years after the fact. Can we trust them? Well, obviously, that's a good question we need to ask as uh, historians. It is an obvious question because for historians today, we are now starting to doubt some of the material in their compilations. You're just not jiving with what we know of the 7th century. Regardless, tonight, and certainly what we're talking about today, what we'd like to know is, if that is their model, can we look at it? Can we at least look and see what these different compilers say about that time? Because even that model, though it may be a golden period for Islam, it was not necessarily a golden period for people like me or people like you those who are the minorities living under that model. And the best way to do that is to go back again to those compilers, people like Ibn Hisham, Waqidi, Bukhari, and uh, Sahih Muslim, and Al-Tabari, and to look and see what they said about those who were living under the time of the Prophet, those who were living there in Medina, more specifically to go back 
to the Jews themselves, the three Jewish tribes, the three Jewish families that dominated the commerce there in Medina. When Muhammad moved in 622, he tried to make an alliance with them. It didn't work. After about two years, that alliance broke down. In 624, then, there was a real disillusion between that relationship. Muhammad went and fought the battle at the Battle of Badr, and 624 came back from that, bob, that battle, and he went to the first of the Jewish tribes, and he blamed them for not supporting him, and he threw them out. That was the Battle of Kainuka family. A year later, in 625, you have the great battle of Uhud. Muhammad was wounded, almost died in that battle. He came back furious to Medina, went to the next Jewish tribe, the Balan Nadir family, told them and basically blamed them for not supporting him, and he threw them up to Khaybar in the north. Two years later, in 627, the Meccans came a third time up to uh, Medina. And there, the Muslims, the Mahajurun and the Ansar, built a trench, dug a trench, the southern parts of Medina, so they, the Meccans could not get across. It was a stalemate battle. No one won, no one lost. Muhammad came back, rather frustrated. He blamed the last remaining of the Jewish tribes. The Banu Qurayza family took all 800 men in one afternoon, slit their throats, took the women as concubines for his men, the children as slaves. So by the, by the five years after his movement from Medina, from 622 up to 627, within five years, all the Jews were either killed, they were either thrown out, made as concubines, or as slaves. If this is the model the Muslims are pointing at, if this is the golden period of Islam, for me, as a minority, as a Christian, for any Jew that's listening, looking at that model, we want and nothing to do with it. That is not a model I'm willing to live under. If the only reason that they were killed, that they were, had their throats slit, was because they refused to support Muhammad, I myself refused to support Muhammad, as would you. So you can see there's a problem with that model. Now, the next question we need to ask our Muslim friends is this. So if the present reality does not exist, you can't show me any examples. If the past reality, the best model that you've got is one that is very violent, then what about since then, the last 1,400 years? Is there any other model of the Khilafah that we can look at? And of course, one of the, one of the ones that you will probably go to, the Muslims will always go to, is the model of the, of the uh, Ottoman, the Ottoman Empire, which existed from 1300 AD all the way up until 1924, when it was finally annulled by Kemal Ataturk there in Turkey. So let's look at that model. From 1300 to 1924, it's probably the best model to use as an example because it's the closest to our time. It was just in the last century. Uh, it's also the best model to use because most of my radical Muslim friends are the ones they usually like to go to that model as the prime example of what will happen today. It's also one of the best models because there were more minorities, more Christians living in that under that uh, empire than any other. And I would like to know how they treated the Christians in the Ottoman Empire. Now, I'm going to show you some dates. I'm going to give you a list of dates. I'm going to go down through them, and I want you to listen to these dates. Because these are dates, these are things that happened during the Ottoman Empire that had an immediate impact on Christians. The first date I'm going to give you is 1300 to 1700. 1300 to 1700, there was a what we call the Janissari Corps. This was an elite corps of warriors. They were all young Christian boys that were kidnapped from their families, brought to the... Uh, to capital there in Istanbul, and they were trained in battle, and they were considered to be the elite of the elite of all warriors. And to show their allegiance 
to the caliph, they had to first convert to Islam, and then they were forced to go back and kill their own families. And for 400 years, hundreds of these young Christian boys were kidnapped, forced into conversion, forced to go kill their families to show their allegiance, proving, proving that certainly that empire was not a benevolent empire. That's not all. In 1683, the Ottoman Empire burnt villages in Austria, enslaved women and children, working men, decapitated the sick and the old, sacked churches and trampled crucifixes. In 1822, the Ottoman Empire massacred, massacred 27,000 Greeks in Thessaly, Macedonia, Constantinople, and the Aegean Islands. In 1843, the Ottoman Empire killed 10,000 Assyrian Christian men and enslaved 10,000 women and children. In 1847, the Ottoman Empire decimated 30,000 Assyrian Christians. In 1860, the Ottoman Empire slaughtered 28,900 Lebanese and Syrian Christians between April and July alone. In 1876, the Ottoman Empire butchered 12,000 Bulgarian Christians in the month of May alone. Between 1894 and 1896, the Ottoman Empire wiped out over 300,000 Armenian and Assyrian Christians. And then in 1915, probably the most inauspicious date, in 1915, while being deported out of Turkey, out of what was then the Ottoman, the head of uh, the uh, Ottoman Empire, 1.5 million Armenians and 250,000 Assyrian Christians died. Women were raped and crucified. Children were enslaved. Yet 200,000 who converted to Islam, all of them were spared, proving that the only reason they were killed was because they were Christians. Now, the excuse has been given by the, those uh, uh, Muslims that the Armenians were in the Russian armies, so therefore they had, a, they had a right to kill them, but so were their Turks. Many Muslims were in the Russian army. None of them were killed. And certainly none of the Assyrians were in the Russian army. In 1918, 15,000 Armenian Christians were dispatched, were killed in Baku. Many were used for bayonet practice. Look at the dates. 1683, 1822, 1842, 1847, 1860, 1876, 1894, 1915, less than 100 years ago, 1.5 million Christians were killed. All by the Ottoman Empire. Is this the model for today? Is that a model you would like to live under? I certainly wouldn't, not with figures like these. What's interesting is that every one of those people, those thousands, those millions of Christians that were killed, every one of them were citizens of the state. They were all legitimate citizens, subjects of the state, and yet they were killed by the very state, the very state that was sent there to protect them. So you may ask, well, then that may be in the past. What about the future? What should we expect for the future? If the model in the past, in the very ancient past, is one that comes from abridged sources and doesn't look very good, if the model of the past that we see, the most recent one, the Ottoman Empire, is certainly very violent and there is no present reality, what should we expect for the future? Well, when you look at the future, I have some questions to ask. If this model is coming for the future, I'd like to know exactly what's going to happen to us. And to understand that, I need to go back to the Islamic law to see what would happen to me as a minority, as what we call, what they call a dhimi. A dhimi is a protected person. Anybody who is a Jew or a Christian or a Zoroastrian would be called dhimis. What should we expect? 
Well, first of all, we should expect to have inferior lives. Why do I know this? Because according to Al-Bukhari in uh, volume 9, hadith number 50, also in Abu Dawud in 2745, it says that it would be a capital offense for a, a Christian to murder a Muslim, but not so if a Muslim murders a Christian. We would have less worth. The blood rate for a kafir, which would be anybody who is not a believer, would be half that of a Muslim, according to Al-Maliki's uh, Al-Rasala, 7498. We would have less honor. It would be a capital offense for a Christian to rape a Muslim, but not vice versa. We see that in Malachi's Al-Rasala, 7520. We would have less integrity. A Christian testimony would be inferior to that of a Muslim, due according to, uh, due according to the Hanafi manual and Al-Hadaya, because we would be considered to be more dishonest and less reliable. We would have less reciprocity. New churches would not be permitted. Only repairs would be permitted. And we can see that even working today in uh, the Coptic uh, areas of, of, of Egypt because of the Hanafi Malay, uh, Manual Al-Hadayah, Volume 2, 4120. We would have less equality. The dhimis, the protected persons, would not be permitted to any governmental post, according to Maldudi, the meaning of the Quran. Discrimination. We would be discriminated against because we would have to pay sometimes two to five times as much tax, called jizya tax and khara tax, as the Muslims there in that state, according to Surah Tauba 929 and also Al-Hadayah, Volume 2. There would be no criticism permitted. Cursing Muhammad, saying anything against Muhammad, saying anything against the Quran would be a capital offense. According to, according to Maliki's Al-Rasalala, we see that already in place in countries like Pakistan, which has the 295C law, which stipulates if anybody criticizes this book or anybody criticizes the prophet, it's a capital offense. There would be no religious freedom, absolutely no religious freedom for non-Abrahamic faiths. They would be banned from any Muslim context, completely according to Surah 928 and Al-Buhari 4, Hadith number 393. And as far as apostates, people that wanted to leave Islam, they would be given three days to repent. If after three days they had not repented, they would be executed, according to the Hanafi Manual, Chapter 9, also Al-Hadayah, Volume 2. What about the powers of state? What would the government look like? How would it be chosen? Would they use a democratic process? And the answer is absolutely no. We know good and well that only those who are Muslims would be permitted to hold office. What about the legislation? What would be the basis for legislation? What would be the basis for law? We know the answer to that as well. It would be the four laws of fiqh. The Hanbali, the Hanafi, the Maliki, and the Shafi school. Again, a law that is imposed would be imposed upon us. We would have no choice. No non-Muslim would be part of the legislature. What about the police? What about the military? Again, only those who are Muslim could participate in the police, in the military, in the legislature, in government. Those are the four areas of power none of which non-Muslims or even those from the people of the book could participate in. What checks and balances would there be against corruption? There wouldn't be any. Because the Islamic State would have complete and absolute control. There is no democratic state. There is no checks and balances. There would be no free press. There would be no ways of holding those in power accountable. And you can see and understand why so much of the Muslim world, which is a memory of that and still not completely like that, has so much corruption involved in it. But more than that, what I'd like to know, as a Christian living under that, would I be able to criticize? Would I be able to say anything freely? And the answer is very simple, absolutely not.
So what then is a real Khilafah? Well, according to Islam, man is basically good. We see that in Surah 30, Ayah 30. And so since man is good, he can create an environment that is good. That's what Islam starts from that premise. And that's why Sharia laws are there basically for him to obey and submit. They are there to keep maintain that goodness as a divine guidance, divine guidance from God, a theocratic state that is then given to the caliph, which is then sublimated to the ulama and then is uh, disseminated across the Islamic world or across the Khilafah. Christianity starts from the other premise. Christianity starts in the premise that man is basically corrupt, has a sinful nature. We see that in Genesis 3, also in Romans 6.23 and Romans 8.3. Therefore, we are incapable of creating a just environment. We need, therefore, God to rule us. We are very much dependent on God, according to Christianity, because we do not trust ourselves. How do I know this? Well, just look an example of the Bible itself. Just look at all the many times where man has tried to tell you, do what God was supposed to do, and look and see how he failed. Look and see how this happened with cases like Cain and Abel, or Nimrod, or the cases of Solomon, or more recently, in the 4th century, where Constantine tried to bring church and state together, and what happened? The state immediately overpowered the church and corrupted the church from within, and that's where the whole desecration that happened within the church began. More recently with the Reformation, which started fine until church and state were brought together under Luther. And, of course, you see again where this state began to corrupt the church. Now, we have striven rigorously today to separate the two. And in most cases around the world, the church and state are separated. Thank God they are. Because whenever you bring the two together, the church gets corrupted. That's why God said, Jesus said very, very clearly when asked, what should you do about paying taxes to Caesar? And he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God, separating the two. Now, God's model is this. God's model is very clear. God says that he will be our God and we will be his people. And you can see over and over again, story after story, where it has been God that has come down. It is God that has fought the battles in the Old Testament. It is God that has made, been the, made the security for people. We see that in the situation of Noah and the flood. We see that with the Exodus and Moses. We see that with the battle of Jericho that was destroyed by, with Joshua. Over and over again, we see example after example after example where God has been our God and we have been his people, where God has fought our battles, given us our security, and it's usually when we try to do it ourselves that everything gets out of whack, goes out of space. We are, therefore, nothing more than sojourners here. This is not our home. Our real home is going to be on the other side of death. We die and rise again and rise again with God for eternity. To be able to walk and talk with him for eternity is our final goal. So there's no need, therefore, for a physical kingdom anymore. We don't need a theocratic state as Islam is trying to uh, create. We haven't needed one since Christ came. Why? All of the, that, the theocratic state that was instituted in the Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All those, those Mosaic laws, those Levitical laws that were instituted under Moses were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. No longer is the state going to be a physical state, a piece of land, a piece of real estate. Now it's going to be a relationship. Whereas we see in Matthew 18, verse 20, where there are two or three gathered in our name, there he is with us. Now, I, it was interesting on the debate at the time, this very thing happened. Sheikh Omar Bakri, after he had gone through his whole model and after I'd gone through my talk, he then turned to me and says, okay, so you do have a kingdom. You do call it the kingdom of God. Where is it? Show it to me. 
And I asked all the Christians to raise their hands. And, oh, they didn't want to raise their hands. They were scared with all these radical Muslims all around them. They did anything but raise their hands. So I said, please raise your hand. Be proud to be a Christian. At least on this night, raise your hand. And then as they raised their hand, I just went ahead and started counting them. One, two, three. Oh, look at that shake. There's the kingdom of God right there. One, two, three. And there it is. Oh, look, at there it is again. I said, wherever you see two or three gathered in my name, as it says in Matthew 18, verse 20, there the kingdom of God is. It's right here in this hall. Look at it. Take a look at it. It's all around you. And then I said to the sheikh, in fact, what you will find, if you look at the last 2,000 years of our history, you will see that whenever we've been under persecution, whenever we have been in hostility, in those instances, it is then that the church is at its strongest. It is then that the church, the people of God, depend totally on God, fall back into his arms, do not depend on our own security, and it is then that you will find Christianity at its best. And then I turned to all the radical Muslims that were there, and I said, I want you to go and look at these people who have raised their hands, and I want you to talk to them. After the debate is over, boy, they didn't like, the Christians didn't like that at all. I said, I want you to go to each one of these Christians, talk to them, ask them questions about their state. Ask them questions about their lives. Ask them questions about how they live out their lives. And that's how you will find the Islamic, I'm sorry, boy, did I get that wrong. The Christian state, the Christian kingdom lived out. It's lived out by people. It's lived out as they follow the Holy Spirit in their lives, as they follow these principles that we see in the New Testament applied to every age, every context. That's the kingdom of God we're talking about. And it's in people. Go and ask them, and you'll see how it's lived out. So we historically have thrived under persecution. Why? Because it's when we're persecuted that we bring back, we get back, we go back to God's security and that relationship. Therefore, we have no need for armies, we have no need for borders, we have no need for embassies or militaries or any type of security to keep us secure as Islam does. No, we don't need that at all. So let's bring it all together. Let's conclude and let's look at these two kingdoms. And let's do a comparative again. On this side... What is the Islamic State? Well, the Islamic State is basically a visible, political, geographical state. Muslims are very clear that they want to bring the Islamic State, the Khilafah, to all countries worldwide. They wanted to see it be visible. And that's why when we look at that, that is not what we're looking at on this side over here. The state, the kingdom of God that we're talking, or if you want to call it the Christian Khilafah, is absolutely invisible. It's people. It's not a place. You can't place it on any map. You can't look there and say, this is the Christian state. It doesn't exist. But you will find Christians in every state. So in some ways, the Christian Khilafah is worldwide. You will find Christians everywhere that are part of that state. They are in relationship with their God. And as they are in relationship with their God, there you will see the kingdom of God lived out. Over here, the Islamic state is a... Is, is a melding of the, of the sacred and the secular, bringing it together. You'll see this in the forms of mosques, in their institution, their madrasas. Uh, they meld every area of life together, so it's a 24-7 religion. On this side, on this side, the, we separate the two. We try to make sure that the church itself always remains independent from the state, so that it will never be corrupted by the state, so that it can get, engage in its own battle. It's a theological battle. It's a spiritual battle, which, which the state cannot engage in. 
The state is only there to police and to make the world safe. But the church is the one that's going to have to take on the ideologies. The church is the one that has to be free to do that. And it cannot do that if the state is melded with it. That's why the, the brilliance of our whole model. We separate the two so that the church can always be prophetic. So the church can always be live. So the church can always be there to take on whenever, even when the state goes wrong, the church is there and is a prophetic voice to the state. Over on this side, the Khilafah is modeled. If you look at the model, you will see everything that the Sheikh Omar Bakri was saying on the day. Everything that I remember reading, everything that I hear. Take a look at these laws and rules and regulations. They basically are 7th century Arabic, nomadic. Basically, they are created and formalized 1,400 years ago. No wonder they can't find a present reality. Who wants to live under a state where you cut off the hands of thieves? Who wants to live under a state where men are permitted to beat their wives? Who wants to live under a state where women are given half the vote and half the inheritance? Who wants to live under a state which stipulates the unbelievers are to have their heads cut off? Oh, I don't want to live under that kind of state. No wonder it's not viable for today. No wonder we can't see any models of it today. Thank God we can't. Because I wouldn't want to live under that state. It's based on nothing more than a 7th century Arab environment. Very rigid, very formal, very monolithic. Whereas ours is modeled, a contextual model that's fluid, it's always changing, it's universal, it, tra it is not monolithic, it transcends culture. And that's why whenever you look at the Christian church all over the world, you will see it's multifaceted. There's a whole mosaic of what the Christian church looks like. And in every culture... It's lived out a different way. Just take a look at the beautiful music that we have worldwide and look and see how we worship our God. How we worship our God in Japan is different than how we worship our God in America. It's different than how we worship our God in Brazil and certainly different than how we worship our God in Africa. And that's the beauty. That's the mosaic. That's the overarching intracultural or multicultural aspect of the church. It is always fluid. It is always changing based on those principles although guided by the Holy Spirit. The Islamic State over here is based on nothing more than rules and regulations, very rigid rules, very brittle rules. Basically, they have gone past their sell-by date. They're no longer relevant for today. And if you look at them, they keep Muslims as children. Almost keeps them in their infancy. It does not let them choose. It does not let them grow up. It basically tells them what to do every area of the life. Just like a father and a mother telling a little infant how to live. On this side over here, we have principles. Flexible. Adaptive. Always applicable. If you look and see the principles that we see in the New Testament, there aren't a lot of rules and regulations. Muslims always ask me, where are your rules? Where are your regulations? I say they're principles. Are principles that are applied to every age. Even when Paul was writing them down, take a look and see how he changed the principles depending on what he was saying to Galatia or what he was saying to Ephesus or what he was saying to the church in Corinth. It was always even flowing, even within his own lifetime, even more so today. We take those principles and then we adapt them. We acculturate them for every age, for every place making the church and the whole principles of the church universal, always adapting, creating, basically letting and allowing people to mature in Christ rather than to remain as infants. Over here, the Islamic State is focused on the here. It's basically a present reality, something they're trying to impose today, yet you look and you can ask, where was it today? It's not here today. Where was it in the past? Well, in the past, it's more of a fantasy. But in the more recent past, it's, no, it's not a fancy, it's a horrendous, barbaric example. 
not at all applicable for today, whereas the focus on this side is not here in creating a state made up place, but it's always there. Our focus is on being with God for eternity in heaven. Over here on this side, it's created, maintained by men, men who are the ones that create it, maintain it, and continue it. On this side, not created by men at all, created and maintained by God, totally dependent on God, through the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Over here, it is established by force. You can see that from the very beginning when Islam just moved out right across North Africa, or going to the west, and right across over to India, coming to the east. This whole area from this area was taken over by Islam. That state then continued from the 7th century right up until the 20th century, up until 1924. Controlled on the unwilling, basically uh, imposed on the unwilling, whereas ours has always been established by personal choice. Nobody is forced to become a Christian. Everybody must choose it for himself. That's why we do not, we do not stipulate that just because you're born in a Christian family, you are automatically a Christian. You have to make that choice for yourself. For many of us, in many of our churches, we even have an institution called water baptism, adult baptism, to show the world when we, become, when we take on that choice. So it's not an imposition, it's a personal choice. Imposed on no one. Absolutely not. Everybody has that choice. Because why? We're given the same, the same freedoms, basically given the same image that God has given us. And if God has free will, so do we have free will. Survives on this side and thrives on power. Look and see how they maintain it. Look at the Islamic law. Look how rigid it is. Look how barbaric, imposing it is. Survives and thrives on this side on weakness. Has nothing to do with us, has everything to do to God, with God. On this side, the Islamic State is dependent upon men whose obedient the world can see. And that's why if you look and ask what kind of people best exemplify the Islamic State, they will tell you, well, this individual and that individual, you'll see they are basically supermen. Because that's, that's basically what kind of men you need to follow it correctly. But you look over here and you say, what kind of people are made up in the Christian Khilafah? And they're the weakest clay vessels that are broken vessels. It's the weakest that usually are the ones that God uses the most. Take a look at our history and see who God has used down through history. It's not the great men and women of, of the world. It's the great men and women of God. It is God that has empowered them. It is God that has given them the gifting. It is God that works through them. And it is God that we must give credit to. Not example by supermen like over here. Weak earthen vessels. That's all we are. Broken vessels. Marginalized. Dispossessed. And through God's power, then we become strong. On this side, the Khilafah deals with sin horizontally. Basically, trying to create and trying to maintain all the different sins of the world by putting a banding on a cancer on this side, our sin, the whole idea of that is maintained vertically. It is God that takes care of it for us, not something that we can do ourselves. Over here, it's a romantic ideal because they can't even show me an example of it today. Over on this side, there are many examples of the kingdom of God, millions of examples of the kingdom of God. Right here are examples of the kingdom of God. I don't have to call it a fantasy. I can see it as reality. And I can see it because I know exactly what it looks like. I can see it visibly. And I can see it in people who are related in a relationship with God. Therefore, what kind of kilafa do we want for today? Well, you've got to make that choice. Is this the kind of kilafa you want? Or is this the kind of kingdom you want? Christ has given us that choice. 
I know which one I want to go for. I don't want anything to do with this Khilafa. This Khilafa brings about barbarity. This Khilafa brings about violence. This Khilafa eradicates and desecrates the minorities in its midst. This Khilafa works for the weak. In fact, strives to bring up the minority. Why? Because those are the children of God. Based not on rules and regulations, based on a relationship between God and man. You've got to make that choice. I know which one I do. Thank God for Jesus Christ and thank God for his kingdom. And thank God that we can see it exemplified even as we talk.